Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we're, we're going to speak to Anita Godes. She's at the Hurdy School in Berlin, and she's the author of a brand new Oxford University Press book, Repression in the Digital Age, Surveillance, Censorship, and the Dynamics of State Violence. Anita, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. Delighted to be here. So I've been following your work on these issues uh, for many years, and it's really great to see this book out. And it really does summarize a, a longstanding research agenda that you've been working on, on the internet and conflict. And uh, why don't we start by having you just tell us a little bit about uh, kind of the trajectory that got you to this book and uh, what you think the major contribution of repression in the digital age is? Yeah, as you rightly said, I have been working on this for a very long time, and I'm really happy to have the book uh, be out now. The book uh, culminates research that I've been working on for about a decade now, maybe a bit longer. And the question really is, if we look at what's happening online in the digital space, if we think about different techniques of digital repression, so surveillance occurring online, censorship occurring online, what are the offline implications? What actually happens offline? And what I'm mostly interested in is how um, authoritarian regimes ultimately use these as part of their broader repressive campaigns. And so the it's been really interesting to kind of track the discourse on these topics for the last decade. We kind of went from um, overwhelmingly positive kind of optimistic accounts of what social media could do for democracy and for the world to overly pessimistic, you know, everything is terrible, it's killing democracy. Um, and now we've kind of arrived in this kind of weird mixture place where, you know, it might be good, it might be bad. Um, but we've had kind of a lot of different discussions about what the role of these new forms of digital repression actually might do. And it really wasn't clear up until now how they interact with traditional forms of state repression. So if we think about uh, people being killed by a state, people being imprisoned um, or otherwise interrogated, um, picked up at protests and so on. And so what I was really interested in was how does surveillance and censorship ultimately feed into these mechanics of violent repression? And so the kind of big takeaway that I have is that they're a supportive function. They really help support traditional forms of repression. So there is no going away of, you know, your traditional forms of state repression. This is kind of a, a supportive part of what, what authoritarian states do. Now, in terms of like the general background context, one of the points here is that we've gone from a world in which the internet was a novelty to one in which it's ubiquitous. Um, and so in a sense, your book is a reflection on what that means for state power and state capacity. Walk us through that a bit. Yes, definitely. So if we think of, many of us think about the quote unquote early days of the internet being the early days of the semantic web, right? So the social media web where we were all interacting online. Um, if we think back to the 2008 US elections, if we think back to um, kind of the uh, the Arab Spring, right? If we think back to the protests in Iran in 2009, there was an overwhelming focus of what non-state actors could do with social media, with the internet. Um, and only in the kind of last couple of years have we placed more emphasis in understanding how it's actually a tool that is used by everyone, including um, including uh, different types of state actors, be they democratic or autocratic. And so what I try to do with this book is really focus on what state actors do. So it's a very, very state-centric book in, in that sense. And it's interesting. And I, I have, uh, I've been working on this topic also in terms of the effects of the digital revolution on state power. And there's definitely models out there globally, the China model, 
um, this idea of kind of this digital panopticon where all, you know, all of your citizens' lives are run through uh, basically information technology controlled by the state. Now, you're working in the Middle East. Is that part of what you're seeing, at, at least aspirationally? Yes and no. So we can learn a lot by looking at what China is doing and we can learn a lot by looking at the Chinese model, one might say. And actually, I would say that we have the best research when it comes to really understanding the intricate kind of technicalities of what censorship looks like for the Chinese case, right? That really, really helps us understand what the quote unquote ideal scenario for authoritarian states would look like. And it's important for us to understand that case, but we also have to see that for many states, the reality is quite, quite different because they don't have the type of domestic market that China has. They don't have the level of sophistication. They don't have the type of state society relationships and governance that that China has. And so what I was really interested in was understanding, well, how does digital technology actually come in when we have way more fragile contexts and also contexts that are uh, ultimately in the context of a, of, a, of a civil war. And so that's why I was very interested in understanding what the role of digital technology is, uh, in, mostly in the Syrian case, but also in other cases in the Middle East, because we know it's very, very important. We have a lot of people who are using the internet, but we don't have this kind of all-encompassing digital infrastructure that, uh, that, that China has. Now, that, that's actually an important point, and uh, we were talking about this a little bit before uh, we began this conversation, which is that when people think about the internet, the mind first goes to social media and think we're going to talk about Twitter, we're going to think talk about Facebook, but you're actually talking about something much larger than that. Yes, so social media is a really important part, and it's for many of us, it's the kind of entryway in how we engage with the internet, right? That's where we feel most empowered to do things different than searching for information, right? We actually actively engage in what we're doing. But there's much more behind that. And what I really focus on is the kind of digital infrastructure that's going on in the background. And the reason why that's so important, especially from a state perspective, is that that's ultimately the part of the internet that states have most control over. So the who gets to actually have access to the internet, how long they get to have access to, how fast the access is, if the access is surveilled or not. And so those are things that in most countries, especially in authoritarian countries, um, very much lie in the hand of, um, of the regime or of the government. Mm -hmm. So there's three like big concepts uh, when you when you get into types of repression and types of ways that these governments go at it. And I want to talk about each one in turn, kind of how it actually works. You've got surveillance, censorship, and then internet shutdowns. Um, and so maybe start with the last of them, uh, just because that helps us to see something about the physical architecture and infrastructure of the Internet. Um, what is this? What is an Internet shutdown? How is it done? What does it do? So when I think about Internet shutdowns, I mostly think about what is sometimes also called a blackout, right? So there is no access to the internet um, in a certain region, in a certain city, or in an entire country. So that's what we might call a blackout. That ultimately means you try to connect your phone to the internet and it tells you, you know, it keeps kind of scrolling or it just says there's no way to access the internet. And that's that's one definition of what a shutdown is. Um, some civil society groups use shutdown more loosely to mean shutting down individual websites, for example, shutting down access to Twitter. Um, so we always have to be careful that we look exactly at what we mean by shutdown. Um, but generally, when we talk about internet shutdowns, it's literally an entire country falls off the map, right? Or an entire area. So there are different ways to do that. 
Yeah, if Sorry. people don't really understand the physical, you know, what's going on here, how, do, how does an authoritarian regime shut down the internet? Do they flip a switch? It ultimately comes down to almost flipping a switch, especially in countries where the internet infrastructure is very, very centralized. So if you think about having only one internet service provider or two internet service providers, and if those are ultimately state controlled or in the hand of you know, a family member of the regime, then it's relatively easy to kind of make a phone call and say, I would like you to make sure that no data travels outside of the country now. Um, there's also physical ways to do it to actually can't damage the cables, mm -hmm. but very few countries actually engage in that because it's very costly to to kind of you know patch those up again. So ultimately, it's a technical solution, and we've seen different types of technical approaches across different types of regimes. But it becomes very very easy to do it when you know there's not a lot of diversity in the internet service provider sector, and so uh, yeah. No, we'll get into this a bit more uh, in a few minutes when we talk about the cases. But there's also, as you, as you point out, you know, there's also real costs. You shut down the Internet. You're not just shutting down Twitter. You're shutting down everyone's ability to do e-commerce, to connect to the world. Like there's real economic costs as well. They're huge economic costs. And when I started working on Internet shutdowns in about 2012, you know, many of us thought that this was something that was really archaic and kind of brute force. And in a couple of years, we'd see no one really engaging in this anymore because it's super costly. Um, and so it's actually been really interesting to see that internet shutdowns are still on the rise and a lot of countries engage in them because as you said, the costs are really high and they're not just high economically, they're also high because they have a big potential for backlash. So if you have a certain part of your population that is a very, already quite unhappy with you and discontent and, you know, would like to see things changed. And then you take their ability to engage in their work, talk to their family, maybe stream Netflix, you know, whatever else you, you whatever your streaming services, if you take that away, it radically changes the, the kind of calculation of maybe, you know, engaging in protest or otherwise becoming, you know, active. It could mobilize otherwise uh, unmobilized people. Exactly. So that's internet shutdowns. What about surveillance? How do you think about digital surveillance? Digital surveillance is something that really keeps me up at night, um, even as a researcher, because it is so much harder to grasp for us as researchers and also for members of civil society, because ultimately in many cases it's invisible. But by surveillance, I think about both kind of um, a broad population-based, mass-based surveillance. So many of us can think of the, uh, the the Snowden revelations, you know, now also almost a decade ago of kind of uh, broad surveillance of internet traffic, trying to pick up um, different types of patterns of what people are searching for, what types of words they're using in their, in their communication and so on. So that would kind of be kind of broad mass-based surveillance, but it also includes targeted surveillance. Um, and here we can think about the kind of NSO revelations around the uh, surveillance spyware that actually allows you to infiltrate people's um, devices to get at you know, their location, who they're talking to, who the contacts are in their phone book. And the combination of having kind of societal level um, surveillance and targeted surveillance really helps regimes that are interested in understanding, you know, what's the, um, what's the level of discontent in the population? And then what are the people that we're really worried about doing? And I think it's really important to differentiate those because targeted surveillance and mass surveillance have quite different effects. 
Definitely. They have different effects. They're oftentimes used hand in hand and um, mass-based surveillance can help kind of filter out who potential targets would be. So you have someone, you know, you have keywords that are flagged. You see that people are, you know, exhibiting specific types of behaviors on social media. And then you say, look, this person seems to be, you know, engaging in some type of behavior that we don't approve. Let's see if we can get them on our kind of targeted surveillance list. And of course, I mean, this is like this is like a, a political science 101, right? But it's not like surveillance began with uh, the Internet, right? I mean, these are Mukhabarat states. These are you know, highly authoritarian states, highly intrusive of society. But in a sense, the argument is that the digital infrastructure changes what they can do in terms of scale, scope, magnitude, speed, um, as opposed to having networks of informants and that sort of thing. Absolutely. One of the things I was really interested in theoretically in this book was trying to understand what's actually new about digital surveillance, because anyone who's worked, you know, historians have worked on this for a long time. A lot of scholars of the kind of post-Soviet space have worked on this. Middle East uh, experts have worked on on this. I'm, I live in Berlin, you know, one of the, the capitals of, if we think of kind of about secret services and, and, and the, the ability that they have to spy if we think of the Stasi. So these are things that happen kind of pre-digital revolution. Uh, so what was really interesting for me was to think about what actually changes with the digital surveillance um, uh, capabilities that states have. And one of the things really became apparent when looking at what the Stasi did, which was, you know, Stasi um, uh, um, agents would say we had a limited number of um, of telephone lines that we could wiretap and we had to make trade-offs and who we kind of take into into that list or not and that limit just doesn't exist when you think about digital surveillance there's basically limited limitless surveillance that's happening so that's the first thing the second thing is that it provides access to previously hard to reach populations and here we can learn a lot from the work by people such as Lisa, Lisa Blades who's worked you know extensively on on these questions of how authoritarian um, security sectors work. And there we really see that surveillance in the offline work world works much better when you have credible informants on the ground and access to certain populations. Now, online, you don't really need that so much anymore because almost everyone has a mobile phone. So there are new ways to reach these, you know, ethnic minorities or other types of activists or members of civil society who otherwise you know would be very very careful about talking to informants but if you have access to their phones you don't need informants anymore and then you get into censorship and here you can easily think about things like how china might uh, uh censor news coming out of uh about the uyghurs um or about uh, how facebook might be uh, or, or meta i suppose it is now um might be suppressing pro-palestinian uh, speech and kind of shaping the information space through these kinds of um, kind of targeted interventions. So we used to think about um, the, the type of content-based uh, censorship as something that kind of exclusively happens in the Chinese ecosystem. We now know, you know, that's definitely not the case. Uh, this happens a lot on Western social media platforms, but it's also something that now is required by uh, legislation in certain Western countries, right, to say that certain types of content should just not be posted online. Um, again, I'm thinking of my own country where I live, where, you know, there, there are quite strict rules around hate speech. And for example, denial of the Holocaust, those are things that we don't want to see online or, or you know, that are actually forbidden to be online. Now, 
when that is used as a way to suppress minorities, suppress opposition movements, then it immediately becomes a very, very political uh, topic. And, and it's one that, you know, um, Western, Western social media platforms are very, very heavily engaged in. Absolutely. Okay. So we've been talking broadly about kind of the internet and these different forms. So tell us about the book itself then and what you did in the book and how you're applying um, your research on the internet to these conflict situations. My approach uh, in the book was to take a quantitative approach. I'm a quantitative researcher. I've learned a lot and a lot of my theorizing is also informed by work by qualitative uh, uh, and field experts, uh, researchers. The approach I wanted to take in the book was to really say, what can we do with quantitative data to kind of really look at the the correlations between different types of uh, basically internet controls, cyber controls, as they call them, surveillance, censorship, different degrees of censorship, and the occurrence of violent repression. And the big data base that I build on is data that I collected when I was, or I'm still working, but I've now for a long time been working with the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, a nonprofit organization that works on quantifying and um, and collecting data on atrocities across the world. So back in 2012, I started working with the Human Rights Data Analysis Group on collecting data um, and, and collating and cleaning data that was that was um, being produced by civil society organizations and human rights defenders in Syria on the Syrian conflict. And so our job really was to bring the data together, to clean it, to link it, and to work with it. And it was actually in that context that Syrian um, civil society actors were telling me, you know, our work has really been impeded by the constant internet shutdowns and the surveillance and the censorship that is that the, the Assad regime is engaging in. So that was very much actually a motivation for me to start working on the on the Syrian case. Now, let's talk about this just for a moment, um, because you have like an innovative method that you talk about in, um, in quite some depth in the book about how you go about um, collecting this data on repression and violence. The this. What's interesting about data that we have on the Syrian conflict is the quality and the just the sheer quantity of data that we have. I mean, it's 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 almost inconceivable how many people were killed over the course of the of the of the decade of the of the conflict, and the data that these civil society groups collected under incredible you know duress was um, extremely high quality, very, very high level of detail, including victims' names, um, when they were killed, in what locality they were killed, and then oftentimes also including circumstances of their death. And one of the things I learned very early on from these Syrian activists was that they were trying to be as accurate as possible about the circumstances to make sure that people weren't calling into question whether these these names were fabricated. Right. a byproduct of having all of this high quality information was that we were actually able to link the information across different data sources. So we had data from multiple sources and we were ultimately able to establish a total list of documented fatalities for the Syrian conflict. Now we did this work, um, it was initially commissioned by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights um, at the UN, and then we continued doing that work in part in collaboration with Amnesty, but also just in collaboration with these documentation groups because it was so important both to them and, and to us. And the interesting thing when you have data from different sources and you're able to link 
where that data comes from is that you're able to use epidemiological methods to estimate how many people were not included on those lists. So estimating the dark figure of how many people were, you know, probably killed beyond what you have on those lists. Now that's really, really important when you're looking at communication technology, because we know that communication technology is correlated with the quality and the quantity of information that we have on killings. So any type of study that's trying to understand repression and that is trying to understand the use of communication technology needs to account for ultimately reporting bias. And it's not just social media. There's been a number of studies recently about how you get reporting bias, uh, you know, from the fact that uh, international journalists tend to be based in capital cities, and so they might miss violence is happening out in rural areas and that sort of thing. It's a ubiquitous problem in kind of event data, conflict event data. Hugely so. And I was really lucky to build on fantastic work by political scientists, by sociologists, and again, by area experts who really have told us about this urban bias, as you as you just talked about as well. And in Syria, then you have the, the added problem of tremendous amount of kind of misinformation, disinformation, um, and kind of active efforts to kind of shape the, 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 the narrative space by both op- opposition activists and by the regime. Yes, and we noticed in the in the course of our work that the level of scrutiny and kind of the adversity that we experienced in doing this work hugely increased with the Russian um, um, entrance into into the conflict. So, twenty fifteen, really, the the information environment environment massively changed. No, absolutely. Um, Before we get into the actual findings of the book, then, you know, kind of one last thing about like the selection of Syria as your primary case study. You also talk about Iran, but really Syria is the primary case study. Why did you choose that? And what do you think we're able to see uh, by focusing on Syria? Syria for me, and here again, I'm actually building on your work, Mark, with, with, with colleagues. You know, we talked about this being the most socially mediated conflict. That is probably not the case anymore because we now have, you know, if we think about um, Israel if, uh, and, and, and Hamas, if we think about U- Ukraine, you know, these are highly, highly socially mediated conflicts. But, but at the time, the future. this really was a harbinger of the future. And so I was really interested in seeing in a conflict where both state and non-state actors are so hugely reliant on social media. Um, how does this actually mediate violence in, in, in the conflict? Great. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the findings of the book and kind of the implications for studying the internet and conflict. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast, and we're back with Anita Godes, author of the new book, Repression in the Digital Age. And at this point, let's get into like the really big findings of the book itself and kind of the impact of surveillance and uh, internet shutdowns and the like on repression. Maybe we can start and you can just like, just give us the big picture. The big picture is that internet shutdowns, more extreme forms of surveillance are very highly correlated with more extreme forms of violence, more violence and bigger military campaigns. And the reason why this was important for me to look at is because there's been some recent discussion about internet shutdowns possibly being a way to avoid violence, right? To make sure that people, you know, don't engage in violent behavior and don't engage in violent speech. And there won't be a 
big necessity to engage in offline violence. Mm -hmm. But everything that we find, and I find this for the case of Syria, I look at Iran in this case, and I also conduct a comparative cross-national study uh, correlating uh, country level internet shutdowns with overall repression. And all of these uh, analyses indicate that internet shutdowns are very robustly correlated with uh, just higher levels of more intense repression. And certainly activists know that. I mean, if you follow Sudan, for example, you know, when there's an internet shutdown, people are saying, look out, something terrible is about to happen. This seems to be what pretty widely understood now in ways that Absolutely. Make and I and I think activists, once again, are a bit ahead of the, of the curve there, because when I talk to policymakers, you know, there's a clear understanding that Internet shutdowns are a problem, but it's not entirely clear what the problem is. Right. So the problem might be lack of information access, economic repercussions, right, that we don't know what's going on. It's less clear that this is actually also very robustly tied to just more extreme violence. Now, one of the things which is fascinating about your argument, though, is it's not just the obvious that they want to turn off the Internet so nobody can see what they've done, right? There's more to the argument than that in terms of why you see this connection between Internet shutdowns and extreme violence. What I find in the case of Syria, where I look at national level Internet shutdowns, but also at regional Internet shutdowns, just to kind of also get different aggregation levels into, into, into our understanding, is that the violence oftentimes already increases before the internet shutdown occurs. So if it were really only about hiding what's going on, then you would assume that people first shut down the internet and then they start engaging in violence. But in, what we actually see is that we see a concerted military eff effort and then we see an internet shutdown occurring. Uh, in the case of Iran, I'm actually able to document how there's also a change in the nature of violence. So it's not just that there's an increase of violence, but there's a clear change in how violence is conducted is a clear focus towards um, controlling the narrative and being making sure that the government ultimately regains control and, and remains in, in the upper in the upper hand. But as you point out, there's also a trade-off. Like when you start uh, shutting down the internet or you start censoring the internet for authoritarian regimes, that comes with a cost. It comes at a big cost and that cost is that it can reduce the from the perspective of the regime, it can reduce the regime's ability to collect information on what the opposition is doing because you're shutting down the internet and ultimately shutting down your ability to also collect and engage in digital surveillance. And so what we find is that it's not just an increase in violence, but it's also an increase in what I call untargeted or more colloquially called indiscriminate violence. So violence that doesn't distinguish between different types of victims. Um, in Syria, a lot of that is uh, barrel bombings, artillery strikes. Um, so, so violence that doesn't distinguish between different types of individuals. Right. Because if you're surveilling everything, you're, you know, it, it, that that's the trade-off, right? It's like you're allowing protests to be organized, but you also know who's leading them and where they're going to happen. And that lets you be more targeted. But if you turn off the internet, in a sense, you're making yourself blind and dumb, but you can get, a, but then you can just get on with killing. Exactly. Then you can get on with the killing. You're less likely to care about knowing exactly, you know, who's engaged in um, in specific anti-government activities. Now, the flip side of that is that I find that where the internet is actually 
available. So I'm looking there specifically at the uh, at the Syrian case, and I'm looking at this at the at the regional level to kind of get a bit more variation. I find that higher levels of internet accessibility are correlated with more targeted forms of violence. And again, here I'm able to make use of the data that I collected together with with, uh, with Syrian documentation groups, where we actually know how people were killed. So if someone was found with their hands tied, or if we found that someone was previously tortured, or someone was killed by a specific sniper, then we know that that's a targeted, um, you know, targeted killing. So what I also hope to do with this book was really kind of um, make sure that we have high quality measurements of different types of government repression. Yeah, and that's really important because it leads to very different types of outcomes. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So let's walk through the the findings itself. So you're looking at Syria. You're looking at uh, kind of national level and regional level internet shutdowns. Describe some of your findings and how you, you know, kind of h- how you analyze them and how you interpret the results. The the book really builds on observational data and the way that I thought about or the way I think about kind of trying to uh, establish useful results with observational data is to work on different levels of aggregation with different types of data sources, you know, trying to account for unobserved heterogeneity, but ultimately we're not in an experimental setting. So that's why I talk of correlations, even though I think some of this might be causal, but I'm trying to be careful with the causal language here. Um, But I start off at the kind of national level, trying to understand what national level internet shutdowns look like in Syria and how they ultimately are correlated with different levels of violence. Um, and I look at both a reported violence, but I also look at under underreporting or you know estimated overall numbers of violence to understand if internet shutdowns are actually significantly changing the amount of information that we have. Now, for the Syrian case, there is some underreporting, but it's not as grave as it might be in other cases. So that? it doesn't look. Sorry. Why? Why do you think that is? I think the reason is that the shutdowns were relatively short. Um, so they were for uh, for one or two days. The Syrian opposition was very well organized and was also very, very professional or professionalized in the way that they collected um, data on on fatalities. So we've worked with many of these groups for you know many many years, and we just see that their level of or their ability to kind of collect this data in a systematic way is very good. It's very different if you have individuals kind of keeping lists. Right. Or if you have just one hospital keeping lists and they don't have access to information. So I think that might explain some of it. I also think part of it is that the the covering up wasn't or I don't find any evidence for covering up being part of or a core goal of the Syrian regime in the Internet shutdowns. Um, the again, if we think about social so being a socially mediated conflict, um, there was so much information on social media about the level of death and destruction in the country that, you know, that wasn't a primary concern. So that's that's kind of at the at the national level. Then I look at the regional level at different levels of internet accessibility, trying to get a bit more fine grained in my measurement of, of, of censorship. And here I find a more qualitative difference. So a reduction in, in internet accessibility is correlated with an increase, both in the absolute number and the proportion of indiscriminate violence. And Increased internet accessibility is correlated with an increase in the proportion of the absolute number of people who are killed in a targeted way. Mm-hmm. And so, again, we see information here kind of being at the core of, of the findings. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, in the case of him. Oh, no, please go ahead. Sorry, I think there was a. Yeah. a <laughs> um, in the case of Iran, I wanted to look at it in a more um, kind of day by day qualitative way, and the way that I was able to do that was to that I worked together with the um, with the, both the Amnesty Tech team and the Amnesty Iran team um, to collect as much relevant information on um, you know video evidence that we had on the protests but also um, other types of information on accessibility and kind of nuances of repression used by the regime. So I look at the internet shutdown in November, 2019, which was, you know, very, very widely publicized. Um, and ultimately the, the kind of main takeaway I have of this case is that it was quite effective in suppressing what we know about what happened um, and in also suppressing the, uh, the protests. Mm -hmm. So going back to Syria, if I remember correctly, you identified 13 major internet shutdowns over the course of the conflict. Yes. So what are, what are the main circumstances there? At what points did you see that uh, the Syrian regime decided to, you know, kind of adopt that strategy? The nationwide shutdowns were earlier on in the conflict. So between 2011 and 2014, that's when we kind of see the internet being shut down in the entire country. And a lot of it was associated with um, specific military campaigns in certain districts of the country and sometimes even in certain cities. Um, so you would see that there was kind of a, a big um, a big protest somewhere happening and uh, and regime forces would go in and really try and just flatten those protests. And that would be accompanied by by an internet shutdown. Later on, it was you know when the when the opposition was actually more formalized and 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 and, and armed, um, we also saw that it was it, it was proper military offenses where, where where we saw that happening. Now, from 2014 onwards, we don't really see these nationwide shutdowns anymore. We see more regional. Uh, level shutdowns happening in certain parts of the country. And uh, and so we see a bit of a, a shift in, in, in strategy happening there. And I think there are two reasons for that. The first is shutting down the internet is wildly unpopular, even with your supporters, mm -hmm. right? So why would you be punishing people who are in support of you by taking away their internet? Um, and the second is that internet shutdowns, if you, if you look, even now, if you do kind of a cursory Google News search, you'll find huge international coverage about the shutdowns themselves, right. more so than the violence. So it's really bad PR. Yeah, because that's something which, um, you know, it's something different from the daily toll of kind of as, as horrible as the violence is, you you do see that it becomes normalized in certainly in media coverage, whereas internet shutdowns are something novel. Exactly, especially when they're just countrywide, when there's no information coming out. And in a sense, it's much better if you're constituencies have access to the internet and the others don't, right? Because then they can continue forming a narrative on social media um, and the people that you don't want online ultimately aren't able to do that. I know this goes beyond uh, the scope of this book, but uh, with the rise of uh, things like uh, the Starlink uh, technology that's being used in places like Ukraine, um, that, do you think that changes the, the um, kind of the strategy of internet shutdowns, if there's the possibility that the adversary can circumvent it? I think it does. And I think we have seen that in uh, in Ukraine. So in Ukraine, we've seen that what I call digital annexation is something that the Russians have been heavily engaged in, right? So they take over a certain territory 
and they try to very, very quickly redirect internet traffic via Crimea mostly, right? So via Russian um, telecom providers. And part of that is ultimately, you know, being able to either shut down the internet or surveil, get a data by by um, by the Ukrainian local population. So that is something that Russia is very much aware of and has used in the in the conflict. Now, shutting down the internet is much less potent when there is an alternative um, satellite structure that's available. So I absolutely think that that changes the 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 kind of um, logic or the, the the usefulness, the effectiveness. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of other problems that come up with it when you have, you know, private entities deciding about who gets access where. But I do think that in, in you know, technically or theoretically speaking, having alternative structures available um, is is a hugely important way to to circumvent the 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 dangers of internet shutdowns. But one other thing, which again, I, actually, it doesn't really go beyond your study because you do talk about this. But certainly in the case of Egypt, uh, there's been uh, there's a famous finding that uh, the Mubarak regime's uh, internet shutdowns in um, in during the during the Egyptian revolution actually pushed a lot of people outside because they wanted to go see what was happening. Um, do you see things like that um, happening elsewhere in the cases you looked at? Initially, in Iran in 2019. There is there is evidence for that. Now we don't have the type of fine grained uh, data on you know turnout that we had or that that was available for the study on on Egypt. But I think initially we do see that more people um, turn out. Um, what's interesting uh, about the 2011 shutdown in Egypt was that it was relatively long. It was five days. Right. A lot of the shutdowns that I look at in Syria are one to two days. Um, and actually, Iran is much more like Egypt, where 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 they where they carry on for longer. Um, so it really also depends on the on the on the length of the shutdown. We have very very little evidence that shutdowns lead to uh, demobilization, um, and we do have some select uh, uh, evidence that they do lead to an increase in mobilization. But I don't think it's kind of something that we find find across the board. It also, as I said, depends on the length and and just the the willingness of the government to engage in extreme violence. Well, I was going to say, because your your findings in the book suggest that it might increase mobilization, but it also increases um, indiscriminate um, counter you know, violence. And uh, so basically, that's the trade off that the regimes are willing to pay. Yes, absolutely. So kind of broadening this out, then, you know, kind of looking at uh, the connection between the, the various forms of surveillance and uh, and censorship, and the impact on conflict, you know, what are the big takeaways that, that you know, that you take from the quantitative study that you've done um, in terms of, you know, broadly looking at the relationship between internet and conflict? We can't think of those two things as divorced anymore. And I think it's a mistake to think that the one is a substitute for the other. And it's a mistake to try and analyze them individually. Mm -hmm. um, so when we think about digital repression, it's very, very difficult to think about that divorced from offline uh, from offline violence. When we think about offline violence, it's almost impossible to think about that not being affected by modern communication technology. So I think we just have to think of those things as a as an entire repertoire that regimes are engaged in. Now I focus on regimes, or so government sides. We see that many non-state actors are also engaging in this and oftentimes, you know, very, very heavily engaging in propaganda as well. So also for, you know, non-state actors who engage in, in, in violent activities, this is just part and parcel of their repertoire. The second thing I really um, have, you know, a big implication for me in doing this work has been the importance of digital infrastructure. 
Um, when we think about, you know, cyber resilience and the, the danger of cyber attacks in the context of war, um, something that's oftentimes overlooked is that once digital infrastructure is captured by one actor, they basically have control of uh, people's information, but also people's access to information. And so it's much more than just, you know, hacking into people's systems. It's actually taking over the physical infrastructure that we need to think about. That's interesting. And I think that that point is actually a super important one. Uh, you know, some of the work that I'm doing these days, you know, really pushes in that direction as well. It's like you can't separate this anymore because the more that everything is digitized, the more that repression online and offline, surveillance online and offline are the same thing. And I think that really does challenge a lot of our theoretical approaches to uh, kind of state capacity and the, the, the modalities of state violence. 100%. And I think I learned a lot from reading research on state capacity, you know, ability to collect taxes, you know, and, and, and how we formalize state capacity in the past and, and digital capacities and infrastructures really just kind of ties very, very strongly into that. So the, I try, the book makes the really great, I, this is going to be a widely read book. I think it makes a really great contribution to this, thing, this the study of the internet and conflict. Um, we have a few minutes left and I want to like switch gears for a moment because one of the things you've also done and you've written about in a number of different contexts is about kind of what this means for political scientists and for researchers and what this increasingly ubiquitous surveillance means in terms of uh, kind of our own security. And can you say a little bit about kind of some of the things you've written and, and thought about in terms of, um, you know, kind of best practices for our own digital security? Yeah, I think it's probably a, a side effect of, you know, studying mm -hmm. digital surveillance for so long that you start getting paranoid in your <laughs> own work as well. <laughs> Uh, so one of the, the pieces that I recently uh, published together with Cassie Dorf and Colin Henry was trying to think about the digital footprints that we actually leave behind. Because when you look at activists and, and the, the kind of threats that they're exposed to, um, not only in authoritarian regimes, also in kind of, you know, we might call them illiberal democracies or semi-democracies and increasingly also in democratic countries, if you're from the wrong ethnicity or the wrong, you know, minority. Um is that these footprints can become really, really dangerous. And so the, the big thing that, that we were thinking about were um, changing political contexts uh, and how they might affect the, sensitive, or the, the sensitivity of data that you collected in the past mm -hmm. um, and that might now become very, very sensitive, right? So let's say you're working on women's empowerment or LGBTQ rights in a country where those rights are, you know, very well protected, you have a change in government and then suddenly that data that you have is very, very sensitive um, or on religion, for example. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we when we do our research and we do, when we kind of do our, our ethics assessments, it's not just about what's going on right now and, and, and kind of formalizing that threat model, but thinking about what the future could look like, um, both in the countries, if we're studying countries that we don't live in, both in those countries, but then also the context that we live in. Um, ourselves. When you when you say digital footprint, uh, explain to the new graduate student, like what kind of digital footprint are they leaving? What are the things that they should be paying attention to? It's really everything. It's your email. It's the first contact that you have with a member of a civil society organization. I'll give a concrete example. You're interested in working with a group that is trying to improve access for um, to health um, services for trans people, um, and you get in contact with 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 
with someone from that organization, right? The moment that you get in contact with that person, you might be putting them at risk, but you might also be putting a target on your own back, depending on the context that you're working in, right? So that first moment of contact- Because you're establishing metadata, which even if they are unable to access the actual content of the communication, they've established that there's a connection simply by virtue of the metadata of a phone call, a text, a email, Exactly. Right. So it starts with the first point of contact. It starts with you, um, you know, having a history of where you are, um, you're going on your Google Maps. It's about using Google Translate, right, or ChatGPT or whatever other cloud service that you're using to uh, to either translate data or, you know, change data in some type of way. Um, so th there, there are lots and lots of different ways in which you are engaging with uh, cloud services or uh, emailing people or, you know, moving your devices from A to B, um, moving your, your data from A to B that can potentially um, put whoever is included in your database, including yourself uh, at risk. And that includes, um, as, you, as you just mentioned, a lot of uh, cloud services um, where we store our data, which might not be nearly as secure as we think they are. Or for that matter, something like Zoom, which we're using right now, um, which might not be nearly as secure as we think it is. Absolutely. And I think one of the things I've, I've learned over the years is the uh, the the I, I'm going to call it the myth provocatively the myth that we had for a long time that uh, technology services and companies that are based in the you know in Western countries I'm going to broadly say um, have a, kind of a, a neutral position in this uh, we have now countless incidences of data being uh, requested and actually also being 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 sent out right of um, social media. Um, data being either leaked or made available for um, for law enforcement or for other types of government services. And so uh, just having, you know, I don't want to say a paranoid, but a critical eye on the, the ways in which you uh, manipulate your data, engage with your data and store your data, um, including email correspondences is just really, really important. I mean, one of the things, for example, is, you know, even before Elon Musk took over Twitter, there was the Saudi ability to penetrate Twitter and get access to um, the communications of, of Saudi dissidents. Um, but then you get the, the sale of the company to Elon Musk. And now all of a sudden, you know, in principle, decades worth of private communications could suddenly be wide open to anybody who wants to see them. And those are the sorts of things that you know you might not even be able to anticipate um, when you're when you're getting started. But now we kind of we kind of have to. It's an absolutely perfect example of changing circumstances and our assumptions that we have about the different tools that we use just radically changing. I don't think any of us who were using, you know, Twitter back in 2010 had any conception mm -hmm. of the way it would look nowadays. And, you know, there've been all kinds of talks about uh, direct messages becoming uh, becoming public or, you know, being being available in some kind of way or, or vanishing, right? So if you've used that as a tool to engage and make contact with, uh, with you know, activists, which a lot of people have done in the past, you know, it's really That's time to think about data hygiene. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And you know, and one of the things which is interesting is, do you think that using things like Signal or you know, kind of encrypted messaging services solves this problem? I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a solvable problem, and I 
I, I think the worst thing as researchers we can do is to say the problem is so complex. Let's just put our hands up and do nothing. Um, I think it's more about the duty that we have to care about what happens with this data and to reduce the the contact points that there are. Right. Um, so I, I came up in the time of, of PGP and everyone kind of trying to use encrypted emails. Uh, you know, half the time it didn't work or people didn't use it correctly or forgot their passwords, you know, things have massively improved. So if you can use Signal, if other people haven't, you know, that's great. If you can use WhatsApp, that's better than using text message. So I think there's just kind of a, a way to be thoughtful about um, how you engage with people and without, you know, superimposing specific structures on, 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 on your research participants. Well, I think this is something really important for uh, especially new researchers to really keep in mind um, as they approach these kinds of potentially sensitive uh, situations, especially in kind of conflict areas like the ones you study. Yes. Where a mistake can get someone killed. Definitely, definitely. And I think it's it's useful to think about your, you know, whoever you engage with, your contact people, your translators, your drivers, but also about yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can also become a target very, very quickly. One of the things I've learned in doing work on digital repression is that increasingly those who report on and study social movements, in especially in the authoritarian regimes, are also becoming a target of digital repression. And so, you know, you might think, oh, I live in XYZ country, you know, I don't know, I'm just going to say Sweden, uh, that, you know, feels very safe, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Well, Thanks so much for uh, speaking with us. Uh, we've been speaking with Anita Godes about her new book, Repression in the Digital Age, Surveillance, Censorship, and the Dynamics of State Violence. <laughs>